Welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, RFERL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and for those of you who may have just joined us, uh, my guest is Irina Lagunina, Associate Standards Editor and former Director and Special Projects Editor of the Russian service here at RFERL. Uh, Irina's been an excellent guest on this podcast in the past, and I'm very glad she could join us again today. Welcome, Irina. It's always my pleasure, Steve. All right. It's great to have you on the podcast. Now, last week, uh, the war in Ukraine passed the 100-day mark, 100 days since the large-scale Russian invasion uh, on February 24th. It's still uh, kind of unfathomable to me, at least, uh, this unjustified death and destruction that Russian President Vladimir Putin has unleashed. But at the same time, it is obviously a very real, and there's really no end in sight, at least in the short to medium term, um, as I see it. Uh, in recent days and weeks, there's been very heavy fighting in the Donbass, that's uh, Ukraine's Donetsk and Luhansk regions, uh, where the war has in fact been going on for more than eight years since April 2014, when Russia fomented separatism there uh, and in other parts of Ukraine, after a Moscow-friendly president who had turned away from Europe was pushed from power, essentially, uh, in Kiev by the Maidan protest movement. Uh, members of that movement were protesting in favor of closer relations with Europe and against uh, corruption and other problems. Now, specifically, um, uh, in recent days and weeks, there's been fierce fighting in the town of Severodonetsk, uh, that's in the Luhansk region, uh, where Russian gains last week seemed to be part of a general trend of Russian forces slowly advancing in the Donbass. But over the weekend, uh, it appeared that Ukrainian forces launched a counteroffensive and took back some of the territory they had lost. And now today, um, there are indications that the pendulum may have swung back Again, so it's a very fluid, very fast-moving, and, and very deadly uh, situation uh, there. Now, it, um, and this this heavy fighting in the Donbass comes after some very major uh, setbacks for Russia in the first weeks and and the first couple couple months of the war. Uh, it seems clear that that Putin had believed uh, at the beginning that Ukraine would be subjugated essentially within days. Uh, but obviously that did not happen. Irina, of course it's impossible to know uh, what Putin is thinking, but I wonder if you have a sense of this. Uh, does Putin, uh, do you think he believes that Russia is winning this war? Uh, and, and what might he see as a victory? What, what is the Kremlin's goal at this point? Steve, I don't think that uh, the Kremlin's uh, goal ever changed since the beginning of the war. Uh, it was obvious from the very beginning that uh, Donbass area, mainly Donetsk uh, and Luhansk regions, is not the kind of final goal uh, of of this war. The final goal is Kiev, of course. And uh, uh, Vladimir Putin, when he, in two speeches uh, that uh, he gave uh, before the start of the war and the speech that he gave uh, on the eve of the invasion, uh, he actually very clearly 
stated that uh, he denies Ukraine the very right to exist. So for him, this goal that he set uh, starting uh, this uh, aggression uh, was to eliminate uh, uh, Ukraine as a state, as a precedent, uh, and what we see in Ukraine right now as a cultural entity because so many uh, objects of culture and uh, libraries and uh, uh, you know textbooks are being destroyed, burnt, uh, and in the areas that Russia uh, that are under Russian occupation right now, they immediately changed the school program uh, to Russian standards, and uh, there is no Ukrainian language anymore. There is no Ukrainian history in schools. So this is the final goal. Uh, as as Putin sees it, and as he shared it uh, publicly. Now, whether Putin now sees this as a, a successful military campaign or not remains to be seen. You know, with Kremlin, as uh, uh, if I may use the fa- the famous quote, as there are known unknowns and there are unknown unknowns. Uh, so. Known unknowns is that we don't know uh, whether Putin is given the uh, true picture of uh, how the military campaign is developing in Ukraine and how we don't know how he interprets it. Uh, It's interesting that, for example, Levada Center, one of the few, uh, actually the only one remaining independent post in Russia that is left right now, uh, they they are asking for two months right now if Russians see uh, the operation in Ukraine as successful or not. So in April, uh, 68% of Russians replied that it was successful and 17 that it was not. In May, though, and this this results were just published recently. Seventy three percent of Russians thought that the operation is so called military operation, special military operations, because uh, Russians are not allowed to say uh, the word war. Uh, so seventy three percent of Russians uh, said that the uh, special military operation in Ukraine is successful, and of fifteen percent said not. So this is up 5%, uh, whereas we see the heavy fighting and we see the setbacks for uh, Russian troops uh, uh, in various parts of Ukraine. So it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting uh, study. And if you, Steve, uh, p- permit, I will uh, go on with this, uh, with this study, because uh, with this poll, because I think it's very uh, interesting. Yes, of uh, course. Uh, the other question that Levada Center asked uh, was, uh, uh, who will win uh, this war? And in April, 73% uh, of uh, respondents in Russia said that it will be Russia. Only 1% uh, that it is uh, Ukraine. Uh, 15% uh, that nobody will win. And 11% didn't know how to answer. In May, though, 75% said that Russia will win, 1% that Ukraine will win, uh, 15 that nobody, and 9 don't know how to answer. So this is uh, a very interesting uh, study. Uh, Russians are 
first of all, they, they, they think that the operation is successful. And um, uh, secondly, they, uh, they, absolutely, they are sure that uh, uh, Russia will uh, win this war. Which is one of the scenarios, of course, because, uh, you know, I don't think that uh, this setback uh, in uh, uh, attack on Kiev uh, actually changed uh, what the end goal of uh, the Russian war in Ukraine is. Uh, Russia is prepared and is showing that it is prepared for long conflict. Actually, majority of Russians, 44%, uh, judging from the same poll, uh, say that they are prepared that the war will last up to a year or even longer. So Russia is prepared for a long military campaign. And uh, let me remind you that over the weekend, uh, Kiev uh, was uh, once again under attack by Russian missiles for uh, Russian missiles landed in the capital, and Putin showed. I mean, he said frankly and straightforward that if West uh, supplies Ukraine uh, with uh, heavy arms and armament, then uh, uh, the next targets will be the, the the next targets will be the targets that, uh, that Russia didn't touch yet. Uh, meaning that it's going to be probably the uh, Rada, the Parliament of Ukraine and uh, the government uh, offices and presidential offices. Steve? Yes, uh, no, th thank you for that. Uh, I, I guess I would just mention uh, some fascinating points. I, I would mention, you know, I think polls obviously, you know, can be skewed to some degree, but, but my, uh, you know, but, but I guess one main takeaway I would have from the, from the Levada polls that you mentioned is that probably the capability of, of Putin to to claim a victory kind of at any point or almost any point uh, is fairly high. Um, you know, he, he can frame things as, as a victory. Uh, I guess that wouldn't be possible if Russian forces are pushed out of Ukraine. Um, but um, it seems like the capacity for, for Putin to kind of tell Russians that uh, we, we've done what we what we uh, sought to achieve uh, is is pretty is pretty high uh, especially since um, you know part of what of what he Putin and other officials have been saying is that you know the idea is to to protect the Donbass and people in the Donbass um, of course they are actually killing and destroying uh, uh, the Donbass but uh, uh, that's uh, that's another issue. Um, also, oh, Steve, I, you, you meant, I'm sorry, sorry I to interrupt you, but it's amazing how susceptible people are to uh, the state propaganda because one of the questions was uh, uh, who is to blame, and uh, eight percent said nobody, seven percent said Russia is to blame in this military conflict. 17%, amazing, right? Very low. 17% of Russians said that uh, it's Ukraine to be blamed. And 57% said that it's the United States and the West uh, who, who are to blame. And that's exactly the propaganda narrative in, in Russia, that it's the West who actually tried to use Ukraine to destroy uh, Russia and its values and uh, who supported so-called Ukrainian Nazis. Uh, interesting fact, they don't use uh, this word anymore. Even Maria Novosti stopped using it. And uh, they now say 
uh, Ukraine military forces, which is a very interesting change in Russian rhetoric. Uh, but nonetheless, it was the West who actually, through Ukraine, posed a threat to Russia. And uh, people are reacting and accepting this. Right. You're absolutely right. And I think more and more lately, uh, you know, Russian officials have been framing it as, you know, we are fighting against, essentially defending against an effort, as you said, by by the West and NATO, you know, to essentially uh, destroy destroy Russia or um, or subjugate Russia. So it's kind of a reversal of what's actually going on. But um, but uh, you're absolutely right. You know, I think that's shown in the polls um, that people are are, uh, you know, to some extent uh, uh, believing this propaganda about about the, uh, the war being an effort to um, defend against the West rather than uh, rather than Ukraine itself. Of course, the claims about Ukraine, I mean, one of the things Russia has been saying, Lavrov and others have been saying throughout the, since the invasion was, well, we had to do it because Ukraine was about to invade. Uh, you know, first they said the Donbass, then they said essentially invade Russia. Uh, so that's another part of the narrative. One other thing I'd just like to point out for, or to kind of uh, exp expand on from what you said, you know, there's been a lot of attention now on the Donbass, of course, because of the of the fighting there. Um, but you also mentioned the efforts Russia is making to essentially um, erase uh, Ukraine, uh, erase Ukrainian culture and, and the Ukrainian presence in uh, parts of Ukraine that it currently controls. And this is, uh, includes areas in the south, um, you know, uh, uh, southwest of the, of the Donbass. So that's another thing that, that's happening. And, you know, I believe Russia now controls about 20% of Ukrainian territory, uh, including Crimea. So, you know, that's something that uh, is, it's quite, it's quite astounding. And, it, and it's just something uh, that Russia is also pursuing. And, and as you, as you said, this goes back to Putin's repeated claims, both before and after the, uh, the invasion of February 24th, you know, that, that Ukraine essentially has no right to exist as a fully sovereign or sovereign state. Um, but now I'd like to also go back to another thing you, you mentioned, uh, which is kind of the, the, the polls about uh, what people think about whether the war uh, is a success and, um, uh, and what Putin thinks about that. Um, and it's kind of, I, I like to ask about the critics of the war in Russia. Um, you know, a lot of people you know, amid a, a huge kind of relentless clampdown that um, got worse and worse in the year before the invasion, and then even worse after it. Many Russians who, who did protest or may have been inclined to protest against the war, uh, you know, have left, essentially driven out of the country. Um, uh, and opposition leader Alexei Navalny, of course, has um, had his prison sentence extended to nine years, and now uh, we learned last week that he faces charges that could result in a 15-year sentence. Um, and protests against the war in Ukraine and Russia now tend to be very small, in many cases just one person essentially showing courage um, by, by protesting. But I want to ask about 
So the threat to Putin that may, that may be posed by a very different group of people, uh, essentially nationalists or, or hardliners who are by no means opposed to Russia's war on Ukraine, um, but are angry or dissatisfied by the way it is being done, by, by the high casualty toll among Russian forces uh, and the setbacks that the military has faced. Um, you know, these are people who are who are saying uh, that that you know Russia could be doing much, could be being much more successful um, uh, on the battlefield. Irina, do you think that these these uh, these people, these voices, I guess, pose a threat to Putin, and how might they affect the way Russia pursues this war in the coming days and months? I, I've heard analysts say, you know, Putin fears. Uh, this group of people more than he fears kind of the liberal opponents of the war? Well, I, you know, frankly, Steve, uh, looking at what, uh, at the crackdown on civil society and each and every uh, protest of even single people who just one protester that goes out in the middle of the city is grabbed within by police within uh, you know 15 20 minutes sometimes even uh, faster uh, so this is a total crackdown and uh, uh, there is a certain fear uh, apparently on behalf of the authorities uh, on the part of the authorities towards uh, any sort of protest uh, regarding the people who those people who, and we don't know if they exist, by the way, uh, there are rumors, there are source, uh, there are reports that are based on sources, but we didn't see, and I want to stress it, we didn't see a single public uh, outcry against the war or against the uh, way the war is conducted uh, from Kremlin officials or from the circle uh, surrounding Putin. Uh, we saw three oligarchs that... Uh, that were kind of uh, horrified with the uh, with the war, and they all uh, left Russia. Uh, but uh, from within this hawkish community around Putin, uh, there was no public criticism yet. Uh, so we can only base our uh, assessment on the reports based on sources. On the other hand, the uh, the person who is the most hawkish. Uh, in uh, the uh, Putin's uh, circle, and this is the uh, chairman of the Security Council of Russia, whose name is Nikolai Patrushev, uh, seems to be uh, quite in line with what uh, Putin is doing and uh, uh, actually continues to uh, publish uh, uh, articles uh, and give interview uh, as he was doing it before the war. And uh, Recently, he once again spoke about uh, uh, the uh, way the so-called special military operation unfolding and uh, uh, repeated once again his, uh, uh, his statement that uh, Poland actually wants to conquer part of the territory of uh, Ukraine. Uh, and as a Proof of this, he uh, gave the visit of Polish president to uh, Kiev recently. Uh, this is something that uh, goes in parallel with the Kremlin narrative uh, that they want to destroy uh, Ukraine as a state. 
so this, this, this idea of Patrushev kind of unfolds quite a time al- already of uh, to separate Ukraine between uh, like Poland uh, and, and Russia, and then probably to fight with Poland, uh, trying to liberate the uh, part of Ukraine that uh, was occupied by Poland. I mean, you can uh, question the normality of such statements and claims, uh, the sanity of, uh, uh, you know, such allegations. But uh, this is something that exists uh, in Putin's circle, in their mind. And uh, I think that this uh, kind of this attitude of, uh, you know, through Ukraine, we are fighting with the West uh, is actually uh, manifesting in such claims as well. Uh, whether that will represent uh, a threat to Putin or whether it does represent a threat to Putin, uh, it's really difficult to say. But at the moment, it looks like the uh, hawk, uh, hawkish uh, group around uh, Putin is uh, still quite pleased with uh, how the uh, situation is uh, unfolding and how the conflict is going on and uh, they really think that they will win this uh, war maybe not in three days as they planned but in a year yes absolutely um, I mean there certainly doesn't seem to be any visible cracks uh, you know in the high, at the highest levels um, around Putin uh, you mentioned Patrushev uh, and his he seems to be becoming, I mean, he was once pretty much silent, didn't speak publicly uh, lately before, both before and, and even more so after uh, the, the the new invasion in February. I think he's, he's he's spoken out a lot more. I believe he's had three articles published since since the uh, invasion. And certainly, um, you know, his... Uh, goals and his kind of claims seem in line with Putin that I've always wondered, you know, how much influence does this, does this person who has been with Putin, you know, for decades throughout his rise to power and, and his being in power, you know, how much influence does he have? Who, who's kind of driving whom? Um, so, and I think Mark Galliotti um, called him the most dangerous man in Russia. I may be misquoting that slightly, but um, certainly his, uh, opinions or his the, the 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 articles the propaganda that he's been putting out kind of don't bode well for uh, uh, I mean I guess they they kind of reinforce the idea that Russia uh, is ready to continue fighting this war and uh, sees it you know to to some degree as as kind of a a standoff with the West. Um, you know whether the sort of reality of what's happening on the battlefield will kind of catch up with that. I guess is something that remains remains to be seen. Okay, um, I would like to we're running a little bit short on time. Uh, if there are, I'd like to take some questions. Uh, if there are any, again, you can. Uh, you can you can raise your hand uh, by um, requesting a speaker privilege. Uh, 
or you can send a direct message or uh, reply to the to the tweet in in the uh, in the Twitter spaces if you want to ask a question. So I'll just give it a, a few more moments. Okay, um, uh, one question has come in at least. Um, sorry, from Luca Grandicelli. Apologies if I'm mispronouncing that. Um, according to the question is according to public opinion in Russia, how much of this war is attributed to the geopolitical issues of the Ukrainian separatist regions, and how much uh, instead? is attributed to a more general question of uh, the balance of relations between Russia and NATO. So I guess, uh, Irina, could you, could you comment on that? I guess it's sort of a question of, you know, to what degree uh, people are seeing this in Russia, are seeing this as an as a issue of the Donbass, uh, or and to what degree they're seeing it as, as kind of a standoff between Russia and NATO. Uh, well, actually, this poll already uh, answered this question, who is to blame uh, for the war, and 57% uh, said the uh, uh, United States and uh, the West. Uh, but having said that, the uh, general, uh, yeah, of course, Russians see it as, a, um, you know, more and more with the sanctions uh, starting to affect the Russian economy. And sanctions, of course, come from the West, not from Ukraine. So more and more Russians are inclined to uh, blame in this uh, conflict the West and uh, uh, the uh, the United States. Uh, but uh, at the same time, uh, from the very beginning, the state propaganda was using the pretext that for eight years uh, Ukrainians were allegedly uh, shelling uh, and uh, bombing the uh, Donbas uh, separatist republic, uh, Donetsk separatist republic and Lugansk separatist republic. And that was the kind of common saying that where have you been for those eight years while Ukrainians were, uh, you know, killing uh, our uh, citizens in, uh, in those two republics. So the narrative at the beginning was uh, it's because of uh, Ukrainian behavior uh, around uh, so-called Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republic, mm -hmm. uh, but now it's changing. It's changing dramatically, and uh, it's like everywhere. You know, even uh, you know this almost anecdote uh, that uh, almost a joke that the Russian foreign minister couldn't travel to uh, Serbia. Mm, uh, the uh, visit was supposed to, to to be on the 6th and the 7th, uh, but the neighboring Balkan countries actually uh, didn't allow him the passage through uh, their airspace. Uh, so he had to, uh, to cancel uh, this uh, visit to Serbia. And uh, today the uh, head of Russian space agency, Dmitry Ragozin, uh, uh, wrote in his Twitter that, oh, uh, you know, 
it's good that Russian missiles do not ask uh, permission to fly through the airspace and unleashed on uh, Romania, Bulgaria, uh, and Macedonia, North Macedonia, uh, for closing the and Montenegro actually to uh, for closing the airspace. So it's everywhere. It's West right. is the monster. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I just point out, um, sort of in a similar vein, I think there was reports. There've been reports about um, uh, school children in Russia singing a song, having to sing a song about. Uh, like basically Putin, if you if you order us to the final battle, you know we're ready, we're with you. Um, you know that's obviously not not about the Donbass. Uh, it's it's a way of uh, the government framing this as as a civilizational conflict against the West. So I think that you know that propaganda is coming to the fore more and more. Um, Another question uh, from uh, reply to, to the pinned tweet. Thank you. Uh, it's about Belarus. Um, uh, the question is, uh, Belarus's Alexander Lukashenko uh, is ordering each town uh, to arm and begin to train 50 citizens per town as a, quote, civil defense of sorts. Uh, and also there's been a large buildup of artillery um, on the southwestern border of Belarus uh, near, near Ukraine. Do, do we worry uh, that Belarus may be readying to fight uh, Ukraine? That's the question, Irina. Uh, yes, we always worry about it because, uh, you know, Lukashenko was, uh, uh, have been able to maneuver uh, starting from the 2014 when Russia annexed Crimea, uh, Lukashenko never recognized the so-called uh, uh, independent uh, Donbass uh, republics. Uh, he was maneuvering around, uh, you know, recognition of uh, annexation of Crimea. Uh, but uh, to what extent he will be able to maneuver now? It remains to be seen because uh, uh, right now the unprecedented sanctions are, are uh, imposed not only against Russia, but against Belarus. Uh, these uh, sanctions are not only uh, the result of the uh, war, but also the result of uh, the behavior of Lukashenko himself and uh, the hijacking of an air, uh, airplane. Uh, so uh, this is a difficult situation for Belarus. Uh, it's economically uh, much weaker than Russia, and it is right now dependent uh, on Russia. For example, in uh, uh, you know, in trying to sell fertilizers, uh, because uh, Belarus is uh, a huge pr producer of fertilizers, and uh, those are banned right now. Uh, so Russia has its own fertilizer production. Uh, so it's not really interested in Belarus uh, fertilizers, but uh, uh, it's a dire situation for, for Minsk. Uh, so whether the situation will lead Minsk, Minsk to accept uh, and uh, obey to Russian you know, pressure uh, to uh, participate in the war... Uh, we don't know it, but it might be the case. It definitely might be the case. Yeah, I mean, things have changed a lot in, in Belarus over the last few years. And, of course, it's a, it is a big question, a very important question, whether 
whether donors will get in, involved uh, beyond you know, ha ha housing uh, Russian troops that then invaded. Um, I just would point out that in the past, in the 90s and 2000s, um, kind of Lukashenko's biggest, one of the main reasons for his popularity in Belarus was, you know, he could say, there's no war. We're not, our boys are not at war. This was during the, the war in Chechnya uh, and other and other conflicts. So, you know, things are changing. Um, we'll, we'll see what happens there. Uh, and now uh, there's a question from um, Martin. Martin, please go ahead. Thank you very much. I appreciate this. Um, a couple points I wanted to raise and uh, you could uh, respond to. One is, so what are the Russians saying when they see that, you know, thousands and thousands of their uh, sons uh, either aren't coming home or uh, are coming home in body bags or some other means of... Um, transport for for dead soldiers uh, I, I mean th this the estimates of number of Russians killed during this war and let's call it what it is a war being waged against um, uh, a non-threatening democratic country uh, so w what is the population saying about that uh, estimates are up to 30,000 Russian uh, soldiers have been killed. And secondly, and I mentioned this on another forum yesterday, um, yesterday in um, the newspaper um, USA Today, Ben Ferenc, 102 years old, the last living uh, judge from the Nuremberg trials, called for um, a tribunal to be set up to try, uh, in his words, Putin and his thugs for war crimes. Uh, personally, uh, I think that's a great idea. So I'd like you to comment on that. Thank you. Okay, thank you. I'll, I'll uh, ask Irina to re to respond shortly. I just wanted to mention um, on the issue of the Russian losses and what Russians think when they when they see this. Uh, for one thing, uh, not all of them are seeing it. I believe um, you know there are people in places in Russia where uh, a lot of soldiers uh, have been sent, uh, from which a lot of soldiers have been sent, and 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 many of them coming back, uh, as you say, in body bags. So people there are, are aware uh, to some degree, but uh, elsewhere I think people may not be. Um, the Russian, essentially the last time the Russian military, believe, uh, you know, gave a, an official uh, casualty figure uh, was in March, and that figure was 1,500 or so. Uh, I think less than 1,500 uh, Russian soldiers killed. You know, obviously, as you mentioned, estimates are as high. Uh, I think the Ukrainian estimate is around 30,000, um, and U.S. and others, including intelligence agencies, you know, have said uh, 15 or more. You know, which, as as you mentioned, Martin, is more than. Uh, the number killed in Afghanistan, the number of Soviet soldiers killed in the Afghan war, uh, which was almost, uh, which lasted for almost a decade. So, you know, I think to some degree the, these things are being hidden, uh, you know, and they, they're not, Russians are generally not seeing the same, same news stories, same, same information that, that we are seeing in the West. But, Irene, do you have any 
Any other comments on that? Yeah, it's it's true that Russians do not see this, and uh, there are there are really d different estimates of the number of Russian casualties. Some uh, say that between two thousand and three thousand uh, BBC. I think over 2,000 names that they know, uh, they collected. Uh, the problem is that uh, there are actually several regions of Russia where there are uh, where the troops were sent to Ukraine from, and there the number of casualties, of course, is higher, and there it's known, like Buryatia or Dagestan, uh, in Tatarstan, Ulyanovsk area, mm, there are quite a lot of people dead there. Uh, but it's not even, you know, even those people who, those families who lost their uh, sons accept, accept and see it completely in a different way. Uh, it's not that their sons were sent to, uh, you know, to fight against a neighboring state uh, to eliminate this state uh, from the earth. Uh, they were sent there to defend Russia from Nazism and from the West. So they are returning back in, uh, uh, you know, in the coffins, uh, but they are returning as heroes. And uh, the propaganda, even on local area, does everything to glorify those uh, who were killed. Uh, they name schools after them, uh, practically in those areas with a large number of casualties. Uh, they now have... Uh, LA of memorial of the glory of those who gave their lives in Ukraine. Uh, so to some extent, it's, you know, it's a, a, a very uh, glorifying thing to, to lose, a, uh, to, to lose a, a child or a, a relative or a son or, uh, you know, a brother in this, in this war. We interviewed several uh, of the relatives, mothers of uh, those who were killed in, in Ukraine. And it's just amazing that uh, they have no regret uh, that their son was sent to, to fight in Ukraine. No regret at all. That, that is, sorry to, to interrupt, that is such a, if I may say, a condemnation of the society that Russia is right now under this uh, dictatorship uh, that they would uh, believe such nonsense. Uh, it really is, um, it's, it's almost depraved, uh, I would say. Uh, they are acting like the Nazis, like fascists, you know, it's, it's anyways. Um, could you comment as well upon um, my other uh, comment about Ben Ferez? Yeah, let me just, I'll just speak on that for a second, um, and then Irina uh, can as well, um, on the the war crimes. I mean, uh, Ukraine has started, has started trying Russian soldiers on war crimes charges, so that's happening, uh, and then international groups are gathering evidence uh, along with, with Ukrainian authorities. Um, but I think, uh, actually, I'll kind of link the two questions and say that, um, you know, what will ultimately happen in terms of Russian citizens uh, seeing the effects of, of the war and, and seeing what's really going on uh, and what will happen in terms of war crimes 
prosecutions and trials and how high how high they might go is is pretty hard to to uh, to predict right now, at least in my view. Uh, it's sort of the war is still raging, and um, this will these things will depend on on the further course of the war. Uh, it sounds kind of cold to say, but but also and also on the outcome. Uh, Irina, yeah, I just can add that the, actually the first step uh, to creating towards creating the uh, sort of international tribunal, and this is the uh, only mechanism that uh, can be applied in this particular case if the international community decides to do so in future uh, because uh, the uh, international criminal court in the Hague uh, Russia is not a part of plus uh, Russia is the uh, permanent member of the Security Council so this path is closed as well uh, so but the the first step is made and that's the international investigation uh, under the UN umbrella uh, of uh, what was done by Russian troops in uh, Ukraine and not only by Russian but on all sides but well, it turns out to be of course much more Russian troops okay thanks very much Irina uh, and thank you uh, for the questions uh, and for listening um, Let's uh, wrap it up there. We're really running out of time. Um, Irina, thanks, uh, thanks for your insights, uh, and, and thanks very much for joining me again. Thank you for inviting, Steve. Okay. Uh, once again, I've been speaking to Irina Wagunina, Associate Standards Editor and former Director and uh, Special Projects Editor of the Russian Service here at RFERL. And my name is Steve Gutterman, Editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL. Uh, as I mentioned at the start, this conversation will also be published as a podcast, and you, you can subscribe to The Week Ahead in Russia and other RFERL podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I will be back next Monday for another edition of The Week Ahead in Russia, and please keep an eye out for my newsletter, The Week in Russia, on Friday. Thanks for listening.